Hello, this is the David Eagle Podcast. In 2016, I released a podcast every single day in a project called David's Daily Digital Dollop. Rather than having 366 podcasts just for 2016 alone, in a bid to unclutter the podcast, I've decided to create these weekly omnibus editions. This is week 17. We're in April, and I'm on a UK tour with my folk band, The Young'uns. When you hear this noise, that means we're moving on to the next dollop. Enjoy. So today marks 400 years since the death of Shakespeare. The radio was talking about Shakespeare non-stop on our car journey from Hampshire to Bristol. There were lots of interviews with school children and teachers who were all passionately talking about Shakespeare's work. It's amazing that Shakespeare's plays are still being taught in schools 400 years after his death and are still appreciated by children and adults all over the world. Shakespeare can't have had any idea that his plays would be studied in such meticulous detail, adapted and given so many different treatments and would still be put on in theatres centuries later. I would certainly be immensely surprised if I knew that David's Daily Digital Dollop was lauded in a similar way, given multiple theatre, television and radio treatments and studied for centuries by school children all over the world. I'm not being arrogant here, I'm saying that I would be massively surprised about that fact. But there is just no knowing which works will stand the test of time. And there are examples of writers, poets and artists not being appreciated fully in their own time, but then recognised as a genius by people after their death and worshipped by future generations. Perhaps my dollops are just too ahead of their time. Hello to any children from the future who may be reading this. Trying to make sense of my strange, antiquated style of English, and you are sick to death of having to endlessly analyse my pro- Maybe your school is about to put on a theatrical performance of my elevator music composer blog. Or maybe you've been asked to write an essay about my work. David's Daily Digital Dollop? Comedy or tragedy? Discuss. Yesterday, we did another afternoon in a primary school. The three of us were each given a microphone to wear, which was wirelessly connected to a deaf child's hearing aids. All the children seemed to have really enjoyed themselves, although the exception might have been the poor deaf child who's potentially going to suffer long-term psychological trauma after what he faced yesterday. The attachment on Sean's microphone was quite loose and every time Sean moved too much, it fell onto the floor. The sound of the microphone hitting the floor must have generated a rather loud sound in the deaf child's ears as he jumped and shouted in shock. This must have happened about five times over the hour. A little later on, Michael put on his guitar and I started playing the accordion. We both forgot that we were wearing microphones attached to hearing aids. Michael's guitar kept knocking against the microphone and my microphone was directly in contact with the accordion's bellows. Seeing the discomfort on the deaf child's face, Michael and I decided to move our microphones away from our instruments, attaching them to our trouser pockets. This seemed to be working absolutely fine until both of our microphones eventually detached themselves from the outside of our pockets and slipped down into our pockets. These were the same pockets that were housing our mobile phones and the child was apparently then treated to some very loud electronic interference being generated by both of our phones. In addition to this, he was also getting a shock whenever Michael and I received a notification on our phone when the phone vibrated directly against the mics. Michael and I were both receiving the same notification 
notifications from the young'un's Twitter account, and given that we had a gig that day, there was lots of tweets coming through, meaning that our phones were both vibrating very frequently. Afterwards, the teacher thanked us for coming into their school and said that she was sure that we had given the children an afternoon that would stay with them in their minds for a long time. I'm not sure how true that will be for the other children, but I'm sure that the memory of our visit will stay with that poor deaf child for a long time. Another really enjoyable and very long day yesterday. We were in the van by 8am to drive to Bristol in time for our BBC Radio Bristol interview with doctor and comedian Phil Hammond. It was great to meet him, as I am a big fan of his work. I'm not too fussed with his comedy, but his administering of prescriptive medical drugs is very efficient and always on the money. After the gig, we went to an Indian restaurant with some friends. Everyone's meal arrived at the same time, apart from mine. I noticed that everyone was waiting for mine to arrive before they started. I instructed them to start eating, but they said that they would wait. Five minutes elapsed, and still my meal hadn't arrived. Upon inquiring, the waiter said that he would go and investigate. Five minutes later, he returned. The others still hadn't started their meals, despite my repeated protestations that they really should. The waiter enthusiastically informed me that the reason my meal was taking slightly longer than the others was because they were preparing something very special for me. It was clear that they'd simply forgotten my order, and he was trying to cover up their mistake. After all, Sean had ordered exactly the same meal as me, and it had arrived with everybody else's. If my meal was more special than Sean's, even though he had ordered exactly the same thing, it would be a little bit of a slap in the face for Sean and everybody else, bearing in mind that they were waiting for mine to arrive, meaning that I got a hot, extra special meal while everyone else ate an inferior cold meal. There seemed no reason or logic why I would be given an extra special meal, unless the waiter was a fan of David's Daily Digital Dollop, in which case I suppose that makes perfect sense. I tried to insist that the others started their meals. Michael and Sean had already started, as they knew that I would genuinely prefer it if they did, but everyone else in our party refused to start until my meal arrived. I tried to explain to them that it would be more polite for them to start than to wait, as waiting would merely make me feel guilty and awkward, but they politely just kept saying, No, no, it's okay. We don't mind. We'll wait. How annoyingly stupidly British these people were being. My naan bread had already arrived and I was eating it I was perfectly happy to have it as a starter. In fact, I normally ate the naan first anyway, so the weight wasn't really inconveniencing me at all. I was happy to drink my pint, eat some naan and chat while the others ate. But still, they refused to eat. It got to the point where I was actually begging people to eat, but they still refused, out of some warped version of politeness that they were mercilessly battering me with. Eventually, my meal arrived. Sean and I did a comparison. They both tasted exactly the same, only mine was was hot. I wonder whose meal was more enjoyable. I had a freshly cooked hot meal, but was unable to properly enjoy it as I was aware that everyone else would be eating cold food that had been sat there for 15 minutes, and thus I felt massively guilty, even though I tried to convince them to eat. However, they might have been eating cold food, but they were no doubt doing so while basking in their self-satisfied smugness. 
after the meal, the waiter came back and asked us how everything was. I decided to pretend that I believed his story about my meal being more special than the others. I profusely thanked him for the extra effort that he'd put in for me. Unless he was prepared to admit that he'd been lying before about the special meal, he'd be forced to keep up the pretense. I enthusiastically asked him to tell me about my meal and how it differed to Sean's. I could tell that he was starting to regret his dishonesty. I don't think he was quite sure whether I knew that he was lying and that I was winding him up. I asked him loads of questions about how the meal was different. He said that he just used special spices. I then asked him why he'd chosen my meal as the special one. His energy, composure and enthusiasm were starting to falter. I wanted to keep going to see if I could make him crack eventually and admit that he'd been lying, but some of the people around me on the table were starting to get uncomfortable, so I left it. Yet again, politeness had spoiled the fun. This dollop has been the most rushed and difficult one to write so far, but if it's a bit rubbish, hopefully you'll be just too polite to say so. A few days ago, Boris Johnson made some risible remarks in the Sun newspaper about Obama getting rid of the bust of Sir Winston Churchill from the Oval Office. Something mysterious happened. This is what he wrote. Something mysterious happened when Barack Obama entered the Oval Office in 2009. Something vanished from that room, and no one could quite explain why. It was a bust of Winston Churchill, the great British wartime leader. It had sat there for almost 10 years, but on day one of the Obama administration, it was returned, without ceremony, to the British Embassy in Washington. No one was sure whether the President had himself been involved in the decision. Some said that it was a snub to Britain. Some said that it was a symbol of the part Kenyan president's ancestral dislike of the British Empire, of which Churchill had been such a fervent defender. This seems like a very weak, shoehorned attempt to suggest that Obama is in some way anti-British, presumably in an effort to... Ladies and gentlemen, Bloody hell. Hell. you have 30 minutes. At this evening's performance, we have a full company performing. Your MD this evening is Mr. Liam Dunneke. Could all Council Girls and Dynamites please now make their way to the Wigs area, upstage left. Could all Council Girls and Dynamites please now make their way to the Wigs area, upstage left. And could all Fisters please now leave the backstage areas. Ladies and gentlemen, you're half our call. You have 30 minutes. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> no idea. There's another production going on. There's a musical production or something going on. So that's an announcement for the other theatre production. But it's so loud in the dressing room. It's massively loud. This seems like a very weak, shoehorned attempt to suggest that Obama is in some way anti-British, presumably in an effort to discredit his motives and his position about Britain staying in the EU. Otherwise, why reference it? This is the opening paragraph of the article. So Boris has clearly deemed it an important point on which to hang the rest of his argument. His manner of writing engenders a feeling of conspiracy. Something mysterious happened when Barack Obama entered the Oval Office in 2009. Something vanished from that room. Boris does his best to keep the atmosphere of conspiracy alive by writing, no one was sure whether the president had himself been involved in the decision. Some said that it was a snub to Britain. Some said that it was a symbol of the part Kenyan president's ancestral dislike of the British Empire. Clearly this is just vague conjecture then, as Boris has tacitly admitted, only veiling it in the cloak of conspiracy and intrigue. 
I'm sure many Sun readers will be sucked into Boris's style of writing and will already be horrified by Obama's anti-British audacity to remove a bust of the great British wartime leader. He clearly added that description of Churchill to stir up patriotic emotion within readers, unless he honestly thought that the people reading might not know who Churchill is. Perhaps he was worried that someone might get confused and imagine that Obama removed a bust of the nodding dog from the insurance TV adverts. I suppose that would put a very different spin on Obama's decision. Boris wouldn't want to discredit his entire article, having his readers completely miss the point and assume that Obama had spotted a bust of a dog from a British TV advert and decided to remove it. Boris's readers would be confused as to why Boris was making such a big thing of it. After all, it seemed like a perfectly logical thing for Obama to do. I mean, this was a bust of a dog from an advert that wasn't even on American television. Of all the iconic things that could possibly be hanging from the Oval Office, surely a bust of a talking dog from a British television advert was highly odd and dubious as a choice. Boris had said that it had been hanging there for almost 10 years, since 1999. The Churchill dog only started appearing on British television in 2004. So there would have been five years when even British people visiting the Oval Office wouldn't have a clue what the bust was all about. Perhaps the bust went largely ignored for the first five years. No one quite understood what the heck it was, why it was there, but it was harmless enough and so they just left it there to hang. But then 2004 came and the TV adverts started appearing on British screens and every time someone from Britain entered the Oval Office, they would mysteriously turn towards the dog and say, Oh yes. In an odd voice before laughing. Obama might have heard about this strange British quirk and the mysterious and peculiar effect that the dog bust had on British people. Obama consequently had the dog bust removed, both for his sanity and the sanity of weird British people who took up hours of precious presidential time talking to a dog, saying, oh yes, and then laughing rather than concentrating on the important reasons for their visit. Despite Boris's best efforts to make his Sun article open sound like an interesting, worthy conspiracy theory, all he has really done is highlight how much of a non-story this is. No one was sure whether the president had himself been involved in the decision, he writes. And surely that's the point, Boris. No one was sure. You've chosen to hang your argument on this weakest of threads, and you yourself have to admit that the decision to remove the bust might have not had anything to do with Obama anyway. So you can dress it up as an interesting conspiracy theory if you want, but essentially it's a non-story, which has subsequently been debunked as complete bollocks. Apparently the bust was removed before Obama entered office, although in fairness to Boris, no one was sure that Obama didn't employ a psychic to send telepathic messages to people in the White House to have the bust removed before he became president in order to make it appear that the decision had nothing to do with him. No one is sure about that. The fact that he also writes, some people said, is also very vague, and is extra indication that this theory of Boris's is just that, a theory, a very weak conspiracy theory on which he pins his argument clearly as a way to try and get the idea across that Obama is in some way anti-British. Ladies and gentlemen, the oh. house is now open, please do not cross the stage, keep all noise in the wings to minimum. The house is now open, please do not cross the stage, keep all noise in the wings to minimum. Thank you. Fortunately, the Leave campaign has much more credible people behind it and doesn't solely consist of Boris Johnson and his peculiar fatuous conspiracy theories. Otherwise, they might be in serious trouble. The good news for the Leave team is that they have 
Nigel Farage, who's much more level-headed and wouldn't waste time concocting peculiar spurious theories about Obama. Nigel Farage was dismissive of Obama's comments about Britain leaving the EU. Obama said that Britain could face being pushed to the back of the queue when it came to drawing up trade agreements with the US. But Nigel wasn't having any of it, accusing Obama of merely parroting the British PM. But as you'd expect, Farage wasn't going to make such a statement glibly. He hadn't just jumped to that conclusion on next to no hard or real evidence. Obama might have got away with merely parroting the PM were it not for Farage's impressive intellect and powers of deduction. This is what Nigel said to Sky News. He said we'd be at the back of the queue. Interesting, isn't it? Americans don't use the word queue. They use the word line. So he's clearly just parroting Cameron. Yes, very interesting, Nigel. <laughs> An observation that both shows off your amazing detective skills and also clearly showcases your abilities as a worthy contributor on Countdown's Dictionary Corner. The pro-leave people were jubilant, ecstatic that Obama had been found out by Nigel's incredible power of deduction. If he'd have only said line, then presumably Farage and the leave campaigners would have been more accepting of Obama's words. But he said Q, didn't he? He did. He said Q, and Americans don't say Q. So he was obviously merely parroting the PM. In fact, no one was sure that David Cameron didn't have Obama hypnotised to repeat that phrase whenever someone asked him about leaving the EU and how it would affect Britain drawing up trade agreements with the US. No one was sure that that didn't happen. If only they'd have hypnotised him to say line instead of Q, then Cameron and the pro-EU team would have gotten away with it. But they didn't, did they? He was programmed to say Q, not line. And of course, Americans don't say Q. They say line. What a bunch of mind-manipulating idiots Cameron and the pro-EU brigade are. If only they'd said Q, not line. It would have all been fine. Except Americans do say Q. It's in the American dictionaries. I've checked. It took me less than two minutes to do. I found definitions and five American dictionaries for the word Q. You'd have thought that maybe Farage could have spared a couple of minutes to do some cursory linguistic research before he presented this theory to the media. But in fairness to Farage, it sounds like a really good theory, doesn't it? And it would be a shame to have it ruined just because it doesn't happen to be factually accurate. Ladies and gentlemen, oh, this is your actual Shut up! It would be a shame to have a theory ruined just because it happened to not be factually accurate. Granted, the word Q is less common in America than it is in England, but it's not as if the word is never used and has been in Britain before. So it's not unlikely that he's picked up some of our lingo. After all, Farage is married to a German woman who presumably speaks English, but I assume that Farage is happy to accept this and doesn't accuse her of merely being his parrot. But I might be wrong. After all, no one is sure that Farage doesn't force his wife to put on a costume made of feathers, flap her arms about, squawk, and then repeat everything that Nigel says only in the voice of a parrot. Some people say that he does this because he finds it sexually arousing. Some people say that he does this because he is an oddball with a weird power complex. No one is sure. The amount of bread that we've eaten on this tour is ridiculous. We get up and leave first thing in the morning and there isn't really time to sit down and eat anywhere. And so we just grab a sandwich. Then we get to the venue and there are people providing sandwiches for us. After the gig we are hungry, but often everywhere is closed apart from takeaway places which serve burgers, pizzas or kebabs which all have a bread element. This morning I had a ploughman's sandwich. I mean, that was the name of the sandwich. In case you were thinking that I'd stolen food from a ploughman. 
perhaps waiting until he started ploughing and had his back turned to me, allowing me to make off with his butties without him realising. The ploughman's sandwich consisted of ham, cheese, tomato, lettuce and pickle, which obviously are the five top things that a ploughman likes to have in his sandwich. I assume that they did a survey of lots of ploughmen, asking them what they liked in their sandwich, and then collated all that information to create the perfect bespoke sandwich tailored to the ploughman community. I enjoyed my ploughman's sandwich, or at least as much as a man who was fed up to the back teeth both literally and figuratively, with bread could be expected to enjoy a sandwich. But as I ate, I wondered why the ploughmen get a bespoke made sandwich for them and why no one has thought to branch out and cater for people working in other fields, by which I'm referring to jobs, jobs that don't involve working in fields. I probably could have chosen a better word other than fields there to describe non-field related jobs, but never mind. What about the data analyst's sandwich or the IT consultant's sandwich? These people continue to be completely unrepresented in sandwich form, yet they are more common jobs. How many ploughmen do you know? But I bet you know at least one person who works in IT. The sandwich industry has clearly failed to move with the times. They don't seem to have recognised the huge decline in ploughmen and the many new jobs that have emerged as a result of the industrial and the communications age. The sandwich makers are clearly out of touch with the real world. I'm not saying that the ploughmen can't still have their special bespoke sandwiches. I'm just suggesting that the sandwich makers could also be reaching out to other professions and survey them about what they would like in their sandwiches and then cater for that community with their own special bespoke sandwich. I suggest that the first group of workers we target are the sandwich makers themselves. I mean, they are clearly the experts here. They are the people who make sandwiches for a living, who have tried many and varied combinations of ingredients. Surely, they, of all people, should know what it takes to make the perfect sandwich. If I wanted to buy a sandwich, then I'd rather buy a sandwich that has been specially designed for the highly discerning, skilled sandwich maker than a sandwich that's been made for a man working on a field. No disrespect to ploughmen, but all I'm saying is that if I want a sandwich, I'd rather have a sandwich that's been designed by and for the sandwich making community just as if I wanted my field ploughing oh and that reminds me I must get onto the phone to someone about that I would choose to get it done by a ploughman and not a sandwich maker it would be interesting to see whether there is any correlation with the results will there even be a perfect sandwich that's agreed on by the majority of people who just so happen to work in the same job or will we discover that sandwich preference is not at all linked to the job that you do might it be that the only workers who agree on the perfect sandwich are ploughmen maybe this is why none of the other jobs have sandwiches designed especially for them as ploughmen are the only ones who have a collective opinion on sandwiches if you found this dollop uninteresting interesting or a bit too weird, then blame it on the bread. It's clearly gone to my head. Oh, and I've just remembered that I haven't actually mentioned the original subject that I was going to uh, write about. We're doing the Simon Mayo BBC Radio 2 show tomorrow. We're on just before the 6 o'clock news. And when I say just before, that is exactly what I mean. Apparently, we only have two minutes. That will be barely enough time for us to sing a song. And there probably won't be any time for me to talk about sandwiches, unfortunately. As this would give me the perfect platform to start collating people's professions and sandwich preferences. We might have to scrap the song. Tomorrow we're at the BBC Radio 2 Folk Awards at the Albert Hall. If by tomorrow we are no longer the best folk group, I hope that you won't desert these dollops. I hope you're not just glory supporters.
This is going to have to be a very hastily written dollop as the Folk Awards are about to commence in the next hour. And I doubt that I'll get away with typing up a dollop in the middle of the ceremony. However, if you see me on the TV typing on my laptop, or even worse, muttering the audio dollop into a digital recorder, then you know that this project has really driven me insane. To the point where I'm willing to sabotage a BBC awards ceremony and in the process ensure that we'll never be invited back again. So apologies if this dollop is a bit short and not very interesting or entertaining. But at least I provided you with an amazing stream of consciousness blog yesterday all about sandwiches, which will clearly more than make up for any shortfall today. I am sitting at the bottom of a staircase in one of the bars in the Royal Albert Hall. Everyone else is drinking around me, but I am resolutely keeping this challenge going. The good news is that these dollops are stopping me from drinking. I mean, chances are that this challenge will eventually end up driving me to drink and become a fully-fledged alcoholic. But the good news is that, at least for now, it's resulted me drinking a lot less. We arrived at the Royal Albert Hall with about 10 minutes to spare. We then had to go through security checks before they believed who we were and that we were actually meant to be on the Simon Mayo show. They asked us lots of questions. It seemed that we were going to end up missing our spot as a result of being held up by security staff. I did try suggesting to the security staff that they could verify that we were definitely the young'uns by locating our website, which would surely take a lot less time than all of the fawning through to different departments that they were doing. I thought that made perfect sense, but it probably just made me sound arrogant. To be honest, I was probably looking rather suspicious as I was carrying a bag containing my laptop and other electronic equipment in order to do the dollop. Eventually, we were allowed to go through with just five minutes to spare. We were ushered into a waiting room where we saw our good friends, the Unthanks, who had just been on the show. We loudly and enthusiastically greeted each other, at which point a Harris producer came running in, waving her hands at us and whispering for us to keep the noise down. It took a few seconds to realise this as we were too busy chattering away to each other and hugging. Plus, she was whispering, so we didn't really hear her. The three of us hadn't realised that the studio was literally next door, and apparently, according to the whispering producer, we could be heard in the studio and would therefore be able to be heard on the radio. In fairness to the three of us, we didn't know that the studio was in such close proximity to where we were, but the unthanks were aware of this because they'd just been on the show. So if there's anyone from the Simon Mayo team reading this, I hope that you can see that the fault clearly lies with the unfanks and not us. A minute later we were whisked into a studio. We were warned by the producer that we would literally only have two minutes in which to do the briefest of chats and then sing. Bearing in mind that the song was 1 minute 40, the chat would have to be very brief. However, when at 5.57 Simon went to the traffic news, the line wasn't working, meaning they came to us earlier than planned. Whether this had anything to do with me or not, I cannot say. Whether I happened to use one of the electronic bits of equipment housed in my bag in order to jam the studio line and thus buy us more radio time, I cannot say. But it worked a treat, and we ended up getting 2 minutes and 30 seconds on the air as a result. At the time of writing, we are currently the holders of the BBC Radio Radio 2 Folk Award for Best Group. What will the next few hours bring? This is going to be another hastily written dollop as we're on stage at Warwick Arts Centre in an hour.
I've spent the day doing loads of interviews. Plus, we did another of our free community events today in a primary school in Coventry. So, if this dollop appears rushed and a bit uninteresting and uninspired, then don't blame me. Blame the BBC Radio 2 awards panellists for having the temerity to vote as best group again. As a result, I was up partying all night. I got about three hours sleep and I've spent the day doing loads of interviews. Plus, there's been loads of Facebook comments, tweets and messages to wade through. Whereas if we hadn't won, then I'd have probably got to bed a lot earlier, got a lot more sleep, and wouldn't have had all of the congratulatory comments to plough through. And I'd be able to speak as well. Nor would I have to do any interviews, meaning that my brain would be a lot less frazzled and I'd have time to actually write something decent. I also had lots of lovely conversations with people at the Folk Awards who are dollop listeners. There were quite a lot of people who were telling me that they listen every day before going to sleep. I find it strange to think that there are people who hear my voice and enter my mind on a daily basis and also that for some people mine is the last voice they hear before they go to sleep. There were quite a few women who told me this, although none of them accepted my half-joking invitation to have my non-recorded voice lulling them to sleep for the very reasonable price of their body, by which I am referring to their live body in a sexual capacity, in case you were worried that I meant that I intended to kill them, which would probably be a bit much, even for such an amazing experience as the one that I was offering. But no, I'm not a psycho, just a slightly creepy, sexually repressed idiot. I didn't feel too rejected, though, as it's obvious that the only reason these female dollop listeners didn't take me up on my semi-jocular offer was because they didn't want to distract me from recording the audio versions of the dollops, which I was two days behind on. So they gallantly decided to sacrifice their night of unbridled pleasure with me for the greater good, knowing how bereft they and all the other dollop listeners would be if they had to go any longer without hearing the latest audio dollop. I would like to thank you all for being strong enough to resist what must have been an overpowering urge to succumb to the pleasures of the flesh, and thus allowing me to leave the party at 3am in order to record the two pending audio dollops. You are truly amazing and inspirational women. I take my hat off to you, though sadly not my pants. I also spoke to the winners of Best Duo at the BBC Radio 2 Folk Awards, Catherine Roberts and Sean Lakeman. You may remember from Dollop 22 that I mentioned that they'd put a thing on Twitter declaring their favourite artists. Included on the list was Maddie Pryor and other big names in folk, but right at the top of the list was my name. Not the young'uns, but me and they're linked to my Twitter account. Naturally, I just assumed that they meant to write the young'uns and somehow accidentally just tagged me in instead. However, I spoke to them both yesterday and they said that they had deliberately meant to mention me because they listen to these dollops every day in bed before they go to sleep. Well, at least I assume they listen to it and then fall asleep. They didn't actually tell me that, they just told me that they listened every night in bed. Whether they find the dollops an audio aphrodisiac or not is none of my business. And to be honest, I wouldn't want to know. After all, it would be a bit of a kick in the teeth to discover that I was responsible for two people getting it on on a nightly basis, while me and my female followers are sacrificing our pleasures so that they can have their daily dose of audio arousal. While it was really nice to hear that they were big fans of the dollops, they sadly did not thank me in their award speech. I'm sure that they will next year, now that they've listened to this dollop and can appreciate the sacrifices that I and others make for them. I have to go now, as I'm due on stage in two minutes. We've just done one of our free community events, performing in an old people's home in Liverpool. It was a lovely gig and everyone seemed to really enjoy it. But then, at the end, chaos occurred. 
As we bid everyone goodbye and made to leave, we heard a kerfuffle from behind us and a cry of wait from one of the ladies. Looking around, we saw that some of the residents had started getting money out of their purses. We tried to stop them, but they were resolutely thrusting it into our hands. It was impossible to stop them and hand their money back as more hands kept going until everyone started joining in. As the enthusiasm for this exercise increased among the residents, the amounts of money that were being presented to us were getting larger and larger, with some people handing over notes. If we'd have accepted all the money that was being thrust at us, then we'd probably have come away from this short afternoon performance in an old people's home with more money than we'd made on any of our actual gigs. We kept trying to hand people their money back, but it was becoming increasingly difficult as more and more people pushed their hands at us and dropped their offerings on the table. The table was now covered with coins and notes. We had no idea who had given us what. If we tried asking people what they'd given so that we could give it back, they either refused to tell us or just said that they couldn't remember. The staff attempted to step in and reissue the money to people, but they had no idea who'd given what. The place was in chaos. Some people had gone to their rooms realising that they hadn't got any money and were now coming back to give us money, not realising that we'd actively been avoiding taking it for the last five minutes. Some people were pursuing us out of the door, still trying to give us money. The staff are clearly not going to be able to give the right amount of money back to the people who gave it to us, so maybe we should have just accepted it. But it seemed wrong to offer a gig for free and then end up coming away with hundreds of pounds. But was it patronising of us to refuse their money just because they are in their 90s? We refused the money as soon as it was offered. Had we accepted, would the staff have intervened? Regardless, it just seemed a bit inappropriate for us to have accepted. But maybe we are going about our performance career in the wrong way here. Maybe we should be using the money from benevolent old people to subsidise our gigs for everybody else. The beauty of this scheme is that the old people don't have to travel anywhere because they live in the venue that we'd be performing in, as it's a sheltered accommodation. Therefore, with the money that they'd be saving on travel, they could afford to pay a healthy amount to us. Also, the fact that these people are reaching the end of their lives means that they'll be able to afford to be extra benevolent. The three of us wouldn't need to bother paying for a hotel because we'd be able to stay in the residential home, either sharing a bed with one of the benevolent old ladies, or taking advantage of any beds that have recently become free due to a resident dying. I cannot see a problem with this scenario, and I intend to forward this dollop onto our agent immediately. I think it's very doubtful that the staff at today's home would be able to give the right amount of money back to the right people. Perhaps the residents will just decide to split the money between them equally. They may even elect to put all their money on the table and split all of it equally between them, thus starting a new utopian life where everyone is equal. This idea then might spread into other old people's homes, and this might eventually filter down to the rest of society. Sadly, this would eventually invariably lead to people being put to death, as yet another communist attempt failed to effectively get off the ground. We thought it would be nice to do some free gigs for people in the community, but we may have ended up accidentally launching a bloody communist revolution, resulting in the possible death of millions. Lesson well and truly learned. We'll be sure to only do gigs for lots of money in the future, and hope that the people in the residential home in Liverpool either die or have a collective memory lapse before they can set their communist plans into action.